I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Sit down with Terrence Moore and the conversation just flows like a mighty river. We were lucky to have him join us a couple years ago in the early stages of this project. He shared rich tales from his distinguished career, which began in the late 1970s. And Terrence provided great insight into the challenges that he and others face breaking down racial barriers in sports media. Well, I'm pleased to say that Terrence is joining us again with a new round of stories. He's got a lot of them after 45 years in the business. He's our first repeat guest, and for that, we're very honored. Hey, Terrence, great to have you back on Press Box Access. Welcome. Hey, I remember the last time I was here, it was so great. I know this will be as great, probably greater. <laughs> we set a high bar, Terrence. We had a lot of fun <laughs> last time we talked, and uh, it was so much fun a couple of years ago going through your career. What a career. I mean, dating back to the late 70s, we had some great stories. And, and as usual, since we last spoke, you've been keeping very busy down there in Atlanta, still writing, offering analysis on TV and radio, cranking out books. Last year, you had a book on uh, Hank Aaron, the, the real Hank Aaron. It's called, and now you've got another new book out, Red Brick Magic, uh, about all the great, amazing coaches and managers and sports executives that came out of Miami University, as you like to say, the real Miami exactly. in, Oxford, Ohio, in Oxford, Ohio, not the U. <laughs> so I think I, it's going to be cool to talk about a lot of characters in those books, because I think what they'll show is, you know, your experiences with them in the last 45 years are just great examples of what it was like to be a sports writer, especially in the days when the, we had much better access to, uh, to the subjects. So, um, so tell me a little bit about, let's dig into the book about Miami uh, University. I know it was a labor of love for you. Uh, tell us about your proud uh, time at Miami as a graduate, 1978. Yeah, you know what, Todd? I was destined to write this book for so many reasons. And, uh, Let's just kind of go backwards in the last, uh, oh, gee, say the last 45 years. Of course, I'm a graduate of Miami, Ohio. You know, I went there from 1974 to 1978. And then uh, later after that, I joined the uh, alumni board. So I was a member of the alumni board for six years. And then on top of that, I taught there as a visiting professor for seven years. So I think I'm qualified to talk about Miami, Ohio for a whole lot of reasons. But the other thing is, being a spiritual person, uh, there's no such thing as coincidence. And there's so many moments in my life, even before I went to Miami, and certainly during the time I was at Miami, and definitely the time of that I was after uh, being at Miami, that made me the definitive person to write this book about just an incredible story of all these coaches and administrators and just sports personalities in general come from this little college in southwestern Ohio uh, that hardly anybody knows about, but everybody knows them. Yeah, let's think of the names here. Paul Brown, Woody Hayes, Bo Schembechler, Ara Parsegian, Weeb Eubank, John Harbaugh, Sean McVay, his grandfather, John McVay, who built the Niners' great teams in the 80s and 90s, Wayne Embry, Walter Austin, on and on. There's so many of them. And uh, again, I think you got to know a lot of these guys during your career because I think your ties to Miami opened some doors for you, right? 
Well, you really did. And uh, you left out uh, a lot of them because there's so many to mention. Well, let's go back to your days at Miami and we'll start there because really it launched your career. So you're a student at Miami University and you're the sports editor of the student newspaper in 1978. And you're in Indianapolis at Market Square Arena for the first round of the NCAA tournament. It's defending national champion Marquette playing Miami. And you're the student newspaper reporter. And you're there. You're the sports editor. So your first real significant time experience as a sports writer involves Miami. What happened that day? Well, I'm glad you asked. And I'm getting chills right now. What, I, I, what is it? I, at the time, I wasn't a math major, but what is that? First, it's many years later now, and I'm still getting chills over what I'm about to tell you. Uh, at the time, my father was AT&T supervisor, so he got transferred around the Midwest, born and raised in South Bend, Indiana, home of the University of Notre Dame. We got transferred to Cincinnati and then to uh, Chicago. But I finished my last couple of years of high school in Milwaukee. So I'm very familiar with Marquette and also very familiar with Hank Aaron. Uh, Hank Ray Raymond's rather. I was also Hank Aaron. That's another story. But Hank Raymond was the Marquette coach by taking over for the legendary Al McGuire. Right. And it turns out I encountered Hank Raymond several times in Milwaukee, just walking around. So getting to that particular game, Okay, it's uh, March 11th, 1978. The game was at 11.30 in the morning. Can you believe that, Todd? And they put it well, what I can't in- believe is that sports writers were able to get up that early. <laughs> but, I mean, this is just a, the NCAA wanted to get that game over with. It was going to be a blowout, and they, they were looking forward to Marquette playing Kentucky, number one ranked Kentucky in the, in the second round. You know, and Marquette was ranked number two or three at the time. Uh, about 10 minutes before the game, I'm walking behind a Marquette bench, and Hank Raymond, a Marquette coach, sees me and recognizes me. Say, hey, how's it going? And I told him, I said, you know, I'm a student at Miami of Ohio. And then he just kind of gets this kind of like this sort of like sad look on his face. He taps me on the shoulder, and he says, they've got a nice little team. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Before we nice little yeah. team. Oh, yeah. I right. that went over well. That's exactly right. And, of course, we know what happened later. Uh, Miami upsets them in overtime. And at the time, Sports Illustrated called it the greatest upset in the history of the NCAA tournament because Miami was such an underdog. Jimmy the Greek Snyder was a big Osmaker at the time. Uh, there were 32 teams in the NCAA tournament back then. He gave odds for every single team of making it, winning the national championship, except for one, Miami Ohio. That right. just tells you how big of an upset that was. What did that day feel like for a young you know, a kid trying to learn how to become a reporter. What did it feel like to experience that? And how did that affect you as you went forward and became a, a, a full-time journalist? Yeah, you know, and that's an excellent question because, you know, uh, and I must say, Miami, prior to that, kind of prepared me for that moment because of the great success of that football program. Again, 32-1-1, hadn't beaten Florida, Georgia, South Carolina bowl games, beaten Purdue a couple of times, beaten Indiana in Kentucky. So, you know, I was used to being in these big moments, but you can't get bigger than that. I mean, again, Marquette, the defending national champions, four returning starters, Butch Lee was a part of the year, and Lil Myro I mean, it was 80, just like... 84-81 was the final, and like you said, right. Butch Lee, Jerome Whitehead, defending it, national it champs. Was a, it was amazing, and you know, and, and, and Todd, you know, one of the things for us being sports journalists, you remember moments, you know, that may not have anything to do with what took place on the court or the field or the diamond. I'm going to tell you one of my most unforgettable moments came from that game. 
So Miami of Ohio, you know, they, they win the game. And I back in those days, we, we were right on court side. Right. Now, not so much. But anyway, we're right on court side. And right to the right of me is the Marquette Pep Band. The game ends. <laughs> so you got a horn in your ear at all times. And a bass drum. <laughs> That's exactly right. The game ends, and a young lady in a pep band just stands up and just passes out of the court. And uh, it, to me, the, the loss of her Marquette Warriors, they were the Warriors at the time, to Little Miami, Ohio, was just too much for her to take. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And then one other quick story about that is years later, I want to say 15, 20 years later, and this is also, also in the book, and uh, it was after Al McGuire died, this legendary head coach, and I'm working at the Landry Road Constitution, and I'm, I'm writing a story about uh, Al McGuire. So I said, you know what? Let me call Hank Raymond, who was uh, Al's assistant for so many years before he became the head coach, to find out, you know, what he thought about Al. So I call up. Uh, Hank, and uh, we're talking, and then he just stops in mid sentence. He says, "Yeah, you went to Miami," and he just went on this rant for about <laughs> ten minutes about that game and about a particular call he didn't like. And he was saying that I will never forgive the official for making that call. All these decades later, that was still bothering him. Yeah, they always remember the losses, right? <laughs> well, that really, you know, a few months later, you're working at the Sensei Enquirer as a, as a young reporter. You get hired right yeah. out of school. And, you know, you've got this experience with that great football team that Miami had in the 70s and this big basketball upset. So you go into, uh, you know, journalism and they immediately just put you right to work. They, they, they told you at one point early on, hey, go find Walter Austin. And let That's me set right. the stage with this one, because Walter <laughs> Austin, he was before Tommy Lasorda. Walter Austin, he co he was the manager of the Dodgers for 23 years, going back to the days of Jackie Robinson. And Walter was in his second year retirement, and he lived in Dartown, Ohio, which was just outside of Oxford. You're a young reporter, and they say, go find Walter. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, you know, here's the other thing, too. Walter Austin, a Miami, Ohio graduate. You know, another guy that was part of the cradle coaches. And Walter Austin, his nickname was Smokey, but it could also have been silent. Just a <laughs> very withdrawn guy. And it was just so amazing to me how this guy was such an effective manager when he was, you know, he was known for not really saying much. I mean, just, just a quiet guy. Didn't, didn't really, he wasn't uh, dismissive of the media, but he wasn't exactly giddy. You know what he was? Uh, Todd, I just thought about this. This popped in my head. He was the anti-Tommy Lasorda. That's right. what he was. Okay. Yep. And, uh, but anyway, so they tell me, okay, it's my, it's my second year. The Cincinnati Inquirer, they said, hey, you know, could you uh, see if you can track down uh, Walter Austin to see if he can talk? Now, even then, as a young reporter, I know Walter Austin's reputation. So I'm like, okay, yeah, right. I mean, you're giving it to the young reporter to do this, right? Oh, yeah. Let's That's get Terrence to do it. Yeah, get, him to, get Mikey to do it. He'll eat anything. Uh, <laughs> actually, it was my first year. It was my first year at Cincinnati Choir. So, I, you know, like a dumb, you know, report. I, I figure, how they find out? I just looked in the phone directory. I, I right. just and, and by goodness, he was listed in the phone directory. And that taught me a lesson that a lot of these guys back then, not so much now, they were listed. So, I just called this number, you know, Walter Olson, Dartown. He answers the phone. And, uh, and so I'm thinking to myself, I need to get this guy immediately. So the thing I thought of doing, and it's something, it's a trick that I use for the rest of my life. I said, 
Uh, uh, I said, Mr. Alston, this is Terrence Morris, Cincinnati Inquirer. I went to Miami of Ohio. I graduated from Miami, Ohio. That was a trick I learned for the rest of my life. That was like your pass key. You could get into any door with that. That was it. And I said that, uh, I want to know if I could talk to you about retirement, blah, blah, blah. And I said, what would be a good time to talk to you? And he said something like, well, he says that, you know, uh, we can come by after dinner. I'm like, I didn't expect that he was going to invite me over to the house. So he was like, hey, come on over. That, Todd, was one of my all-time favorite interviews. I spent Why? Time- Why is that, Terrence? Well, for one, he's a hard guy to get. You know, and, and you don't expect uh, to have Walter Austin to invite you over to his house. Okay? That's one. Number two, when I got there, he was so fascinating. There were so many aspects to this man. I mean, he was a guy that he liked to uh, work on. He was like, like a woodsmith. He liked to work on things with his hands. Uh, he liked riding motorcycles. You know, he said really? about this. Yes. I can't picture that. A guy with four World Series rings who doesn't like to talk, but he loves motorcycles. Exactly. And this, at this point, he's in his late 60s. You know, uh, uh, one of his biggest vices, though, when he was a he was like a, a chain smoker. He was, he was smoking uh, Lucky Strikes like crazy. But, uh, but you know, and, and the thing was, he's introducing me to his wife, to his, his mother-in-law who lived, his mother-in-law lived with him, and, and they were offering me donuts and coffee. And it was, it was just like this, this, this family that was just like, you know, you're like a grandparent, you know, at, at that point for me. And he's showing me his backyard where, when the, when the Dodgers used to come to town to play the Cincinnati Reds, he would often have gatherings at his house. Dark Town is approximately 37 miles from Cincinnati. So all those guys, Maury Wills, Sandy Koufax, they would just come out to this little country town, you know, to have a little to, cookout, right? In the yeah, backyard. Cookout. And, and his wife and his, and his mother-in-law did all the cooking, you know, uh, <laughs> and that sort of thing. But that was all great. But the one thing that I would cherish for the rest of my life, it was a Monday, uh, Monday in May or June, something like that. Uh, I spent part of that evening in the living room with Walter Austin, sitting in his easy chair, watching Monday night baseball. And I'm thinking to myself at the time, how many people get this opportunity? I'm here with this, this Hall of Fame manager, 23, like I say, 23 years of the Dodgers. He managed Jackie Robinson, Sandy Koufax, Dave, Don Drysdale. And it's just he and I sitting in his living room watching Monday Night night Baseball. It it was surrealistic. Was he questioning moves? This is only two years after he was in the dugout. Well, you can tell he was. And and it was like, like, for instance, there were times, it was early on during that session, Todd, when I was wanted to ask him a question, and I just looked at his face, and I could tell he was digesting what was going on in the game, like he was out on the field. So I didn't want to disturb the moment. You know, it's right. sort of like that. Right. But uh, that was one of many, 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 many fascinating, fascinating encounters I had with what is called the credit of coaches. Well, let's go to another one. About a year later, you get sent up to Columbus. And I love your curiosity, Terrence. That's what's made you such a great reporter <laughs> and writer. You go up there to, uh, to interview Tom Cousineau, who was an Ohio State linebacker who had just been selected number one overall in the NFL draft for the Buffalo Bills. This is 1979, I believe. 79, yes. And so it's about five months after Woody Hayes had been fired as a Ohio State coach. So you go up there to do a story about Cousineau, but you decide to be curious. <laughs> what yeah. happened then? 
Yeah, well, you know, I was on my, you know, I was getting ready to drive back to Cincinnati. And, you know, and that's, this is the way I thought back then. And actually now, as a matter of fact, it was like, well, since, since I'm in Columbus, what else can I do? And I started thinking, well, Woody Hayes. I mean, Woody Hayes had punched a Clemson player in the Gator Bowl in 1978. Five months earlier, right? Five months yeah. earlier and just disappeared. Nobody heard from Woody Hayes. You know, he would pop up from time to time at different functions around Columbus. But for the most part, he had not talked to any media person whatsoever. And he was, he was an ex-out. So you know, I thought, well, you know, maybe if I could, I could do a fun column or story or feature story on trying to find Woody Hayes. Not thinking I would find it. Just a story about, you know, just kind of humorous thing. So I'm asking various people, have you seen him? Have you seen him? And no, of course, nobody has seen Woody Hayes. So I'm on the verge of going back to Cincinnati, and the very last person I talked to, before I'm getting ready to go down 71 uh, from Columbus, Cincinnati, is this young student, woman, the female student, and I said, hey, would you have any idea what Woody Hayes is? She said, <laughs> she's got a pause. She says, um, I heard he's got an office in the Naval Science Building. And I'm thinking, okay. And I was just kind of was going to dismiss it, but I said, eh, let me go check it out. Yeah, it could be part of the, the fun story. So I'm walking up the steps, you know, to like the second or third floor, and I open the door, and I literally, Todd, I literally run into Woody Hayes, almost knocked the man over. And for anybody who don't know, Woody Hayes had a very volatile personality. Okay? No, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> So I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm going to get punched out here. I'm going to be on the front page of the papers everywhere. And I, and I said, oh, uh, Coach Hayes, I apologize, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, no, son, I, I want to apologize for knocking you over. And then he asked my name. And I'm, like, really nervous. And even though I go by Terrence Moore in headlines or what have you, but I, my people call me Terry Moore. Mm-hmm. So I just said, Terry Moore. So he says, oh, Terry Moore, you're the old center fielder for the St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> I had no idea what I was talking about. But there was a great center fielder for the St. Louis Cardinals, Hall of Famer. Yeah, Woody was a big baseball fan. He, he knew his baseball. Yeah, He really did. So we're talking a few minutes about that. So one of the things that I believe in, like I tell my students, I, I believe in true transparency. So I just said, Coach, I, I need to be honest with you. I said, I, I, I want to know if I could talk to you for five minutes. But I need to tell you that I'm the reporter for the Cincinnati Inquirer. He got this look on his face. I thought he was going to give me like a right hook or something. And then he said, he looks at his watch. He says, you asked for five minutes. I'll give you five minutes. You should have asked for two hours, Terrence. That's exactly right. Todd, he gave me exactly five minutes. (laughs) But it was the greatest five minutes I could think of. And at the end, I said those magic words again. Hey, I'm from Lima, Ohio, blah, 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 again. And And when he heard that, his eyes just lit up. And from that point on, to make a long story short, which is all in the book, we had the most unbelievable relationship after that, that uh, as some of the moments would just will shock you when you read Red Brick Magic. Well, his eyes lit up because Woody coached Miami in 1950-51 and before he went to Ohio State. So, again, he had that tie and that love for that school down there in southwestern Ohio. And like you said, it led to a, a working relationship you know, that paid off for you over the next few years, even to the point where you were able to go to the funeral for Woody Hayes when he died yes. in 1987. Yeah. And, and uh, not many people were, were, you know, had the access to go to the church and, right. and experience that. But you did that and were able to write about it. 
Yeah, and it was only maybe, if I were guessing, there could have been more than, oh, gee, maybe a dozen reporters that were allowed there, and they put us up in the balcony. And one of the stories I got in the book, I got many interesting stories about that particular incident. But what was fascinating about that time, at least one of the fascinating things, unbeknownst to me and I think everybody else, uh, one of the persons who was doing the eulogy, uh, uh, just he was sitting in the front row, and he just started limping up to the podium to give his remarks. And all of a sudden, it was like we were just we were looking between ourselves. That's Richard Nixon. So it's like the former president then, who was very close to Woody Hayes, had this relationship that went back to the 50s when uh, Richard Nixon was vice president under Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, they were very, very close. And then just the irony, you, for those who know Richard Nixon's past and was Woody Hayes, they had a lot in common in many ways. You know, one of the most eloquent things I've ever heard in my life. So there was that. But the one thing I point out in the book is that um, Woody Hayes did not like Michael cassette tape recorders. And Todd, you probably, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you encountered Woody or not, but Woody was, at, to say old school is to be an understatement. There's a famous story about Woody Hayes in Columbus when a reporter was trying to interview him with a, with a uh, Michael cassette tape recorder Woody Hayes knocked it out of the guy's hands and stuck his finger in his chest and said, take notes like a man. <laughs> so, you know, so there's that story. So I don't know what Woody would have thought about podcasting. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But I'm using that to set up this story. So the one stipulation they gave us, the few media people who were at this funeral in Upper Arlington, uh, uh, Ohio, which is outside of Columbus, they told us that we could not bring in any electronic devices. Well, God forgive me, um, you know, I snuck in a microcassette tape recorder. I mean, I just had to. There's no doubt about it. So I, I snuck it in and took the recording. And so when the, the thing is over, I, I listened to that thing, oh, my goodness, maybe hundreds of times. It was so great. The Nixon speech and everything. Had all right there. Wait, wait, wait. You, wait a minute. You, you, you have the Nixon tapes. The Nixon tapes. Yeah. yeah. Shot. Just and like Watergate. I love that word, Vietnam. Anyway. Uh, so I had to have the tapes. I listened. So then it was like a six months, five or six months uh, after that, at the funeral, I'm thinking to myself, I got to preserve these tapes because these are so valuable. So I put them somewhere, and you know the rest of the story. I have no idea where that tape. I've done. I mean, I've done searches. I mean, I can't find it. And so the only way I can think, uh, what I can think, what I think about, which I put in the book, this was Woody Hayes' revenge. It was like I said, young man, you <laughs> broke the rules. You're well, Nixon, Nixon knew a thing about tapes disappearing. You know, there's an 18 minute gap in Terrence Moore's tape from yeah, Woody right. Hayes' funeral. Well, Woody, <laughs> Woody, there's so many stories about Woody, and you know, 28 seasons at Ohio State. He's obviously the iconic legend of college football in the state of Ohio. But you also got to know another person whose name, I believe, doesn't get nearly enough attention anymore because he dates back too far, but that's Paul Brown. Oh, yeah. Paul Brown basically built the modern NFL with invention. He did. Co-founded the Cleveland Browns, co-founded the Cincinnati Bengals, on and on and on. And you don't hear him a lot, his name mentioned a lot. Paul Brown, of course, had ties to Miami. Yep. So did Terrence Moore. Yeah. And so when you were working at the Cincinnati Enquirer, that once again paid off when you went to training camp 
for the Bengals, where he was at that point general manager. He had retired from coaching. And for people who don't know, those early Bengals were outstanding. They were the best expense team of all time. Within three years, they were the fastest team ever to go to a playoff. Once again, the genius of Paul Brown. I mean, Paul Brown did that with the Bengals. He had won all those championships, seven different league titles with the Cleveland Browns. He won a national championship as coach at Ohio State. He was a high school legend at Massillon, Ohio. Um, So again, he did it at every level. And by the time you meet him, he's an absolute total legend. Yeah, and one thing that, that, uh, and I'm going to tell you the story about it, is that the one thing that Paul Brown does not get enough credit for, if not any credit for, that needs to be talked about more. Uh, everybody talks about April 15th, 1947. That's when some guy named Jackie Robinson wrote the color barrier and baseball, and to many people's thinking, the color barrier in sports. Wrong. That would be Paul Brown. Paul Brown, a year before that, with the Cleveland Browns, I became the first coach to play African American player. Not one, but two. Two, right? Mary yeah, Motley and yeah. That's exactly right. That's a year before Jackie Robinson. So anyway, that Paul Brown, okay, 1979. I'm a you know, grew up as Dark Bengals fan. And this is at this point my second year in Cincinnati Inquirer. So I'm sitting up, sitting up to Wilmington, Ohio. And that's where the uh Bengals used to train back in those days, you know, hot day and just steamy. And this is all part of the story, Todd. <clears throat> this was back in the days when uh, if you were in training camp, you could do anything shy of taking a chainsaw to somebody's legs. Okay, we're talking <laughs> about tour days, three-hour practices, uh, not manicured lawns, uh, just hot sunny day. Anyway. Yeah, there was no load management at the NFL <laughs> yes, training sir. camp in those days. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, none of that. So, anyway. so I'm just this, this kid, first NFL training. I'm scared to death, okay? And it's my Bengals, everybody. And I'm looking across the field. I see Paul Brown across the way. I mean, the great Paul Brown. I mean, yeah, not only is he, is he great because of all the things that we talked about, but he's also the guy that went to my alma mater, Miami, Ohio. Everybody knows about Paul Brown. So the practice ends, first of the tour days. Paul Brown is, or actually the second of the tour days. Paul Brown is walking toward me. And I'm thinking, no, this is not happening. So I'm looking behind me like he's truly looking at somebody behind me. He's walking straight toward me. So he comes to me and he says, are you the young man that wrote the story today? And what he's referring to is I had written this first personal story, George Plumpton style, uh, when I went to Richmond, Indiana, to try out for, for the Reds. And uh, I may modestly say that I, I didn't make the cut. <clears throat> I was pretty good back in the day. Well, some uh, play and some write about those who do play. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and it was a front-page story for the Cincinnati Inquirer. And uh, uh, Brown apparently had read this. And I said, uh, yes, I am. He says, uh, I need to see you in my office. And Uh-oh. Uh-oh. there's some other things in between there. But I'm scared of that. I mean, like, what in the world? And, you know, and Todd, you know how this is. When somebody says something like that to you as a re- reporter, people say your life flashes before your eyes. Well, what you do is everything you've written about that individual passes before your eyes. Right. So I'm thinking, I've never written about Paul Brown. <laughs> what is this? And I'm thinking, about, did I write something bad about the Bengals? I had no idea. That's what I'm thinking, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so later on, you know, I get to his office, very Spartan office, which is so Paul Brown. And for those who are Bengals fans now, I know some of you can attest to this about the Mike Brown, as Paul Brown's 
son has got the reputation of not being the biggest spender, except for Joe Burrow. But anyway, uh, so, you know, this was typical. Paul Brown, just a very simple office. It was Wilmington College, a dorm, you know, one of these dormitories, no frills, dormitory type deals. So Paul Brown comes in, he sits behind the desk, and I'm sitting in front of him in like one of these little third grader chairs. And we just had a little, little chit chat. So finally, it gets to the point. And by the way, I should say, you don't really chit-chat with Paul Brown. He's not was that type of guy. <laughs> he you do was, a lot of listening. Was, <laughs> yes. And he also believed in getting straight to the point. So he said, listen, he said, I saw what you did with the Bengals, with the, with the Reds. He said, I want you to try out as a defensive back for the Bengals and, and write about it. Now, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. That's why I set up what I told you before. This was the real National Football League. It's not, not, it's not the training camps they have right now where you don't touch anybody, you know, where it's, where it's flag football. No, no, this was, the, this was different. And they would have loved nothing better than to have a reporter out there so they could, you know, they, uh, you would have been a pinata. Yeah, yeah, right. So I just said, uh, thanks a lot, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Brown or Coach Brown, whatever I said at the time, I said, but I, I, I have to politely refuse. He stood up, he looked at me, and he had the coldest eyes, and he said, think about it. <laughs> As he walked out of here. You did develop a good rapport with Paul Brown. You were able to visit him some other times down at his office at Riverfront Stadium. Uh, you mentioned his his office at training camp was Spartan. What was his office at Riverfront Stadium like? Wow. You know, <laughs> this is one of my favorite parts of the book, is that Paul Brown only really had two visible vices, if you want to call them vices, or maybe that's not the right word, two, two, two visible things where he splurged. Let us put it that way. You went into his office at, at uh, uh, Riverfront Stadium. And Riverfront Stadium, you know, as, as a young kid growing up, being a diehard Bengals fan, also a diehard Big Red Machine fan, I must, must add. Riverfront Stadium was built in 1970. And, you know, back then, you just think, whoa, a state of the art, whatever. The place was, a, was, was awful. I mean, it was, a, it was just not, it was not the best. And that's because they had our official... It was like a giant concrete ashtray. It like was. all those stadiums in the 70s. Right? It really Multi-purpose was. Multi-purpose cement. The only thing that, that, that I would say that was always a plus... I was always amazed, Todd, and you can attest to this. It was always spick and span. And then that's one thing about Cincinnati. All of his sports arenas have always been that way. They, I mean, even right now, they're just they're the cleanest facilities I've ever seen. So it was always that. But I'm setting it up to say, to get to Paul Brown's office, you had to know where you're going. Because because Riverfront City was built in, in the midst of, like, parking garages. All right? And, and it was just like a hidden door, like find a secret door and everything. And once you got in there, you go into his office. I mean, he had this one window that theoretically overlooked Riverfront Stadium, but it was like the, the worst view that you could see <laughs> because he, he didn't care. I mean, he only cared about the bottom line, and he did the bottom line very well with the X's and O's. But the one thing that was so striking when he walked in there, he had this huge rug of a, of a uh, I can't imagine why of a Bengal tiger, and it was and and the rug had an actual Bengal tiger head on it. Oh come on! It was. I mean, and it was like <laughs> one of these things that was scary. I have a lot of this, and everybody would just talk about it. It's like, and to this day, 
I've been asked around people like, what happened to Paul Brown's rug? Nobody can tell me. I, I suspect Mike Brown's got it somewhere, but I would assume. But it was just, I mean, it, it was just so striking. And the only other thing that he had that he splurged on that was so obvious, he had this love for this Cadillac. Okay, he loved this, he had this, this old Cadillac that he just, that he, that he just uh, revered. Did you ever get the ride in it? I did. I wish I could have. Okay. But, All right. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, what was that song? Pete Cadillac. I mean, whatever. It is. I got almost <laughs> the songs in my head. But anyway, uh, but those little moments like that, I got them throughout the book about this tells you about different aspects of the personalities of these guys that perhaps you may not be aware of or you just be shocked if you knew. And when you think about Paul Brown, you know, he had all that success as a coach. Then as a general manager, he led the Bengals to two Super Bowls, the final one prior to his death in 1991, a few years before that. Uh, he, you know, he lost those Super Bowls to the San Francisco 49ers. And yep. the intrigue of that is the 49ers coach was Bill Walsh, who used to be an assistant coach for Paul Brown with Cincinnati in the early 70s. And then, obviously, the man we mentioned, John McVay. McVay was the general manager of those 49ers. McVay had played for Paul Brown. Now, yeah, think exactly. about that. And McVay was from Northeast Ohio, where the 49ers owner, Eddie DeBartolo, was from. So you have all this intrigue of this Ohio subplots going on between those Bengals and 49ers teams back in the 80s. And as you pointed out, um, the Niners' success was really, you know, Walsh gets a lot of the credit, right. and rightfully so as a coach, but John McVay was in the background building that thing. Tell us a little more about John McVay. Well, you know, uh, I'm biased on this because I'm a huge, or was a huge John McVay fan. Unfortunately, John McVay passed away last year. Uh, but John McVay, I contend that John McVay is the most underrated, greatest figure in the history of the National Football League. And I mean that wow. sincerely. Uh, he does not get enough credit. And part of the reason he doesn't get enough credit, the fault goes to John McVay. Why do you say that? Why, why is that? Because not only was he, everything I just said, Todd, he was also, and I, I got to think about this before I say that, I, I think I can rightfully say he was, he, he was either 1A or 1B, the most modest, greatest sports figure I ever met. You know, a lot of times you hear this about how you hear about people say, well, you know, they, they, don't, they don't want the credit. They want others to get the credit. They want to deflect the credit. They want it to uh, whatever. And a lot of that, as you know, Todd, is, you know, is media talk. You know, or deep down inside, it's like, hey, give me the credit. Look at me, look at me, look at me. John McVeigh sincerely did not want the credit. He wanted everything deflected from him to Bill Walsh, who gladly would take the credit, because Bill Walsh was an egomaniac, okay, uh, to Eddie DeBartolo, who was also an e egomaniac. So in many ways, as a matter of fact, uh, Bill Walsh writes about this in his book, uh, the, uh, winning, the Winning Edge. Bill Walsh admits in his book that the only way that dynasty could have lasted was because of John McVeigh, because John McVeigh was willing to sacrifice his ego for everybody else. Wow, yeah. You don't have that much anymore in sports. Right, right. But he was the man. And the way you knew he was a man, again, that 49ers dynasty, which to me is the greatest dynasty of all time uh, and, uh, and the NFL. 
And uh, people say, well, what about the, the Cowboys? What about the Green Bay Packers? Yeah, what about the Patriots? Well, here's why it's the greatest. It lasted for 20 years, okay? And again, not buried the lead. This is John McVay with his fingerprints all the way through it. It lasted for 20 years. During that 20-year stretch, that was during a stretch when the National Football League switched systems from going from uh, a pre-free agency and salary cap to, fr- to free agency and salary cap. I miss that because the Niners won two of their Super Bowls in the old system. They won three of their Super Bowls, their five Super Bowls, in the new system. Okay? Who was there? John McVay. Yeah, he was the common denominator, right? Right. 20 years. They have Joe Montana as a Hall of Fame quarterback. Who's responsible for him? John McVay. Okay? People say, well, Bill Walsh, yeah, but I'm telling you, not to get into the details, John McVay had a lot to do with Joe Montana. John McVay had a lot to do with Steve Young coming from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, to, to, uh, to the 49ers. Now, hold on a second. Hold on a second, Terrence. Why do you say that, not to get into details, but why do you think McVay, as much as anyone, had such an impact on two of the greatest quarterbacks ever, Montana and Young? John McVay was a very astute football mind. He was a scout. He knew talent. I mean, he was very good at talent. And Bill Walsh told me that many times before that he had never met anybody who knew talent more than John McVay. John McVay, I'm going to exaggerate the point to make a point. He, he was very much like Paul Brown. Paul Brown was like this too. They could watch a guy for 10 minutes and know everything they need, need to know about him. <laughs> Whether or not they could play or whatever, and then project to how that person would, is going to fit into their system, not only in the coming weeks and months and years, but down the road. John McVeigh was a, a constantly a multidimensional thinker. He was all of that. So he was able to see us that what a Steve Young could do uh, and project at the same time. Now, remember now, they got Steve Young when they still had Joe Montana. <laughs> right, right. And he's projecting, okay, well, at some point, Joe Montana, blah, 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 Steve Young, and it worked, okay? Uh, so he was a constant denominator through all of those different changes. So for 20 years, he is a guy that was always there, okay, no matter what. Steve, all right, and think about it. Three different head coaches, Bill Walsh, Hall of Famer. George Seifert, may not be a Hall of Famer, but certainly a, a, a perennial Coach of the Year guy. Steve Mariucci takes it to the playoffs. Three different, but the same general manager. So that's why I say that he is was such an underrated guy and the key to that entire run. Do you have a personal memory that of an experience with McVeigh yourself, you and him, that you treasure to this day? Yeah, you know, uh, there's so many, but if I had to pick one, and this ties very deeply to the Miami thing. This is uh, in 2010. Uh, and it was right before the Super Bowl, which was out in San Francisco at the time. And I got a chance to huddle with, uh, with John McVay out there, uh, just talking about uh, the Super Bowl coming up and uh, their, his uh, young grandson, some guy named Sean McVay, you may have heard of him. <laughs> and we're right. talking about all these things. Who, by the way, also beat the Cincinnati Bengals in the Super Bowl. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, I don't think I, Mike Brown and the Brown family want to hear any more about the McVeighs. <laughs> no, no, not, not at all. And he's sitting there, and, and then he just starts talking about emotionally, and this is all in the book, about his time at Miami. And he's reminiscing about all these guys, Carmen Coza, who went on to be a great coach at Yale and the winningest coach in the history of the 
of the Ivy League when he retired. Um, uh, Bo Schembechler, Eric Parsegan. Oh, how I loved Eric Parsegan, John McBain. And he's just getting misjudged and teary-eyed. And he, was, and, he, and he gave me this great line. He says, you know, we were just having so much fun. He said, we never wanted to leave. Yeah. He said, but we had to leave. But we didn't want to leave. And I, and I, and I was just, I love that. Because, and I loved it because I can relate to that. And I loved it in the sense, here's this man, this grown man, uh, what, 50, 60 years later, and he still has this, this great emotion for his alma mater. That works to, has worked to my favor through the years. Because I, I go back again, I can't tell you, that, that Miami connection has opened so many doors for me because of that emotional feeling people have toward Miami. You mentioned Era Parsegian, and McVeigh played at Miami with Era, right? I believe they're on the same team. Yes. Yeah. And, and Era had played for Paul Brown. Right. Think about this. I mean, again, all the ties there. And then Era goes on to become this great coach. He coached Miami and then as an assistant, and then he, uh, for Woody Hayes, and then he became Northwestern's coach, and then he went on to legendary status at Notre Dame. 1964 to 1974, won two national championships, one of the all-time coaching legends at Notre Dame. Also, you were growing up in South Bend at that time, right? So you have much more than just a tie with Parsegian with Miami. Okay, so then you become an adult and a journalist, and you cross paths professionally with this guy that you grew up with at a distance, kind of, you know, worshiping as the guy, but then starting in the late 70s and moving forward through your career at Cincinnati and San Francisco and Atlanta, you developed a rapport with this guy. Tell us a little bit about how your relationship developed over the years, your professional relationship with ERA, and how that paid off in terms of journalism. The first time I met Era was at a, a Notre Dame Navy game, 1979. This is the first time I ever covered a Notre Dame game in South Bend. Again, I'm and he was, he was working television at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah and and, right. uh, and I went up to him. I told him I grew up in South Bend. This is Terry Moore. And he could tell I was nervous. But he just constantly, he made me feel at ease right off the bat. And then I said the magic words, the word again. I graduated from Miami of Ohio. Oh, my goodness. I had him right there. And it just went from there where whenever I was in South Bend or many times I was in South Bend, I would huddle with him over something. The times he would come to Miami and I was there. He was at Miami quite a bit. because He was also a, a, on the board of trustees at Miami University. Right. And uh, we developed basically a friendship, a very, very strong friendship to the point, which is in the book, Eric told me things that, that he had never told anybody before. And among the biggies, which are, it's in the book, is why he really retired at that young age, as you say, of 51. And the story is fascinating. It's kind of a two-part story there. And some of the other interesting things he told me uh, about his stay at, at, at Notre Dame. Okay, well, let's hear why Era retired. Because, again, it was shocking. At age 51, he was at the top of his game. Notre Dame was national champions. Why would Era want to walk away from that at age 51? It was a two-part thing here, and you can read the details in the book, but I'm going to give you the cliff note version. The first part of it is you have to understand in 1973, he won the second of his two national championships, won the other one in 1966, and actually should have won four, but that's what those two. Uh, so 1973, okay, they win the national championship, 
at the end of that season, a handful of his defensive players, might have been some offensive players in there, but I'll just say a handful of his players, five or six of his players, were accused of rape, sexual assault, something like that. It was something along those lines. And uh, it got some publicity, pretty significant. Because anything that time that Notre Dame does anything that's considered bad, people want to jump on Notre Dame. You know, it's really holier than thou. So uh, uh, Father Hesburgh, the legendary uh, Father Hesburgh, who I knew very well, he was uh, the president at the time, uh, basically called uh, Era into his, to his office, uh, and, uh, and Father Joyce was another legendary priest at the time, and just said that uh, uh, we want you to make the announcement to the public that these players will be suspended for the uh, 1974 season. Okay, now, two things here. Era didn't think that the players got a fair shake because there was some extenuating circumstances involved that Era told me about, which I don't share in the book, by the way. Um, and then the other thing was Era didn't feel that it was his place to make this announcement. I mean, as much as he revered Father Hesburgh and Father Joyce, he thought that was more of an administrative type of thing, but Era did it anyway. And as I point out in the book, after Era made the announcement that these players, pretty prominent players, I mean, we were suspended for the 74 season, he told me that after the press conference at Notre Dame, he drove home and got in his driveway, and he was so emotionally exhausted, he almost could not get out of the car. And that's when he started thinking to himself, this is beginning to be too much. He also had these physical elements, but that was part one. Part two, which I pointed out in the book, the season takes place, 1974. And everybody thinks that what pushed Arrow over the edge was the last game of that regular season. 1974, they won the national championship in 73. Notre Dame still has a chance to win back-to-back national championships. They're playing Southern Cal at the end of the season. And at uh, right before halftime, Notre Dame takes a 24 to nothing lead. And then some guy named Anthony Davis returns <laughs> opening kickoff right before intermission, and it's 24 to 7. 24 to 7. But you know what? We got this. Except final score, Notre Dame 24, Southern Cal 55. 55. Right. Oh, 55 in a row by the Trojans. Exactly. <laughs> the worst beating in the history of Notre Dame football, period. And there's some stories behind that. I'm saying that for another book. Wait, wait. <laughs> so the offseason takes place. Uh, you know, we get to near, near the end of the season. Aaron announces the retirement. So everybody's, everybody says, aha, the reason Aaron is retiring is because of 55-24 Southern Cal, Tuomboso. No, they would be wrong. Because he told you much later when you were a columnist in Atlanta, because of this relationship you had developed with him, he confided in you much later the real reasons why he retired. So give us that. Yes. And, and Todd, I can see why you have such a great podcast because you are so good at setting up your guests. I love that. Okay, I'll give me a high five. Uh, yes. And he told me, he said that wasn't that game. He said it was a game earlier in the year. When, wait for it, Notre Dame was playing Navy. Yes, Navy. We're talking about the same Navy that Notre Dame had beaten every year since 1963 when a guy named Roger Staubach beat them. Since that point, up to that point, Notre Dame had not only beaten Notre Dame, Navy every year, but crushed them, okay? 
So this particular Navy game took place in Philadelphia, and it was a particularly grueling game for Notre Dame, even though they won the game. Okay, but it wasn't by Notre Dame standards or era standards. It wasn't enough for the Notre Dame fans. Yes, and it wasn't enough for era. Okay, so so era says the game is over, and he was just totally exhausted there in Philadelphia. And he said that he became even more exhausted when he was walking back to the team bus. He says he gets on the bus. Okay, this is a Navy outside of the old uh, stadium they played there. It might have been Veterans Stadium. Franklin That's, Field, maybe. Yeah, Franklin, yeah. yeah, probably Franklin Field. And he says that he gets on the bus, and he says out of nowhere, he says a, a couple of uh, students, I don't know if they were Notre Dame students or Navy students, jump on the bus, and they're you know all liquored up. And he says, he says one of them comes over and just kisses him, gives him a kiss right on the lips. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, he said they're flying back to South Bend. He's thinking about the kiss. <laughs> He's thinking about the baby game. He's thinking about uh, you know the suspended players. And, and think about how remarkable this is. In spite of those suspended players, I mean they were still having this great season. They think about all that. And then he just he said he, he got home. He opened the door to his house, and he said that his wife was. You know, in the hallway, he said he had his bags. He said he said he just flew. He just slung his bags on the floor of the hallway, and he just told his wife with slumped shoulders, "I'm out of here." Mm-hmm. That's when he first said, "I'm gone," mm-hmm. and never changed his mind from that moment on. Didn't tell anybody. He kept it to himself until near the end of the season when he told Father Hesburgh and Father Joyce. And here's the rest of the story. This is also good too. Uh, they were going to make it very dramatic. You know, like the Gipper, they, you know, Notre Dame, dramatic, you know, that sort of thing. So what they originally wanted to do, he told Father Joyce and Father Hesburgh near the end of that season, even before the Southern Cal game, that he was going to retire at the end of the season. They were going to save it to right before the bowl game. Mm-hmm. Okay? Right. They didn't right. know at the time they were going to play Alabama, but think of how dramatic that would have been, Todd. If, like, right before the bowl game, Aaron announced, I'm out of here, you know, they would have done something like, upset Alabama, which they ended up doing anyway. But anyway, so, but the story leaked because his replacement was a guy named Dan Devine. And Dan Devine had been the first choice with Notre Dame uh, before Eric Parsegian back in 64, if you believe that or not. Okay? And Dan Devine at this time was the coach of the Green Bay Packers. So, Notre Dame always wanting to be ahead of the curve even now when it comes to coaching hires. Notre Dame had already talked to Dan Devine and told him, hey, look, Aaron's going to retire at the end of the season. Would, would you want to be the coach? Get Dan Devine is still with the Packers, and he agreed. So it was all set, and they wanted not to tell anybody, wanted everybody to stay quiet till at the end of the season, except Dan Devine ran his mouth off to a uh, columnist, uh, can you believe that, a columnist in uh, Minneapolis. And there's a great, uh, you probably know that, there's Sid. Uh, Sid Hartman. Sid Hartman, the great Sid Hartman. Right. Sid Hartman. Being like, you know how we can be, uh, Todd, we can't hold a secret. Spilled the beans, and it was out there. So that changed Notre Dame history right there. That exactly did. <laughs> well, I think the fact that uh, Ara Persegian trusted you enough years later after getting to know you to tell you some of the details he never really had shared before about his retirement, which was so shocking in 1974, the end of that year. Uh, I think that just shows you the trust 
and the relationship that that you were able to develop with so many of these big name coaches and athletes because of dating back to those ties at Miami. And I think that comes across in your book, Red Brick Magic, and I recommend that people check it out. It's really a great read because there's so many great stories about famous names who all have this thing in common. And Terrence Moore's the guy to write it because he has it in common with him. And you did that throughout your career. Great career. I also recommend The Real Hank Aaron, an intimate look at the life and legacy of the home run king. Uh, in our previous episode, which you should check out, uh, Terrence had some great stories about Hank Aaron. Um, and I've really enjoyed just catching up with you again, Terrence. Um, wish you the best of luck with your future books. I know you're never going to be done. You're yes. still writing. And uh, thank you so much for joining us again uh, on Press Box Access. Yeah, I'm going to leave with a quick tease tip for you, Todd. I am in the process of writing book number three. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's it's going to be a... Uh, Breaking news here. That's right. You're the first to hear this. It's going to be a hit, Turner. I can't give you any more than that. But uh, I'll be on your pod- podcast to talk about that one, too. Paul, I'd be glad to have you again, Terrence. You're always welcomed in, in our tavern. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning or have never even heard of paddle, or padel as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!